So today we're at Warren Ponds. I'm Patrick Stokes and I'm chatting with Chris Mays, who is an ADI. What's the exact title? Uh, DECRA Research Fellow. DECRA Research yeah. Fellow with um, the Alfred Deakin Institute. Uh, and this is your second year at Deakin now? Third year? Uh, second. Just second year. Coming up to second. Excellent. Count this so before, too quickly. <laughs> well, before we talk about your book, do you want to um, give us a sense of, of your uh, career trajectory and, and how you find yourself in Warren Ponds? Sure. I'll give a brief snapshot. <laughs> I, so I did my um, PhD at Sydney University, um, working on uh, sort of philosophy and social histories around uh, medicine and healthcare, particularly looking at uh, campaigns around um, obesity and conceptions of fatness and bodies. Uh, and so I was using um, Michel Foucault primarily as my sort of philosophical um, underpinning for that project. And on completing that, I went and did a postdoc at Penn State um, in the US where I was looking and working on a project to do with food ethics and um, some uh, aspects of uh, private industry influencing nutritional research in public institutions. So a concept of institutional corruption was something that we were looking at. Mm which was quite interesting and then came back to Sydney University and was fortunate enough to work as a postdoc on a similar project looking at the influence of commercial actors in um, public health policy and also health research uh, and my role more with philosophical and sociological background looking at, um, at those influences. And then I put in for a DECRA, um, a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award, if I can remember the acronym, uh, to look at the history of bioethics in Australia and how bioethics um, emerged distinctly in Australia or, or, or that it's not simply the same story as, say, what happened in the US. And that's what I've been working on and that's what brought me to Deacon. So the new book, uh, Unsettling Food Politics, not your first book. So you've previously written on Foucault and, um, and biopolitics around obesity in particular. Yes, so now it seems like you've sort of shifted a little bit from a kind of from food consumption to food production, but still within a Foucaultian framework. Yeah, so Foucault still is uh, influential in this book um, and take up a few uh, similar trajectories from the last book. But yeah, there's a, a, a relatively significant departure um, in the focus on. Uh, his, more historical in the role of agriculture and food production in uh, the colonisation of Australia and it's particularly its um, role in dispossession and, and the violence done towards Indigenous people in Australia uh, and looking though also more uh, forward perspective on what would a food politics look like that takes that history a bit more um, seriously or, or a bit more centred in thinking about um, sort of some of the contemporary issues that food activists and food politics people are talking about. Mm -hmm. Sure, and this is very much in the air at the moment too, of course. I mean, there's still the ongoing uh, reception of some of Bruce Pascoe's work around yeah. you know, pre-European um, farming practices in Australia, yeah. or agricultural practices in Australia. Um, looking at it through the kind of theoretical lens that you're applying, what does the, the sort of colonisation of Australia in agricultural terms look like? Yeah, so I think... Um what was interesting or what interested me and I suppose the philosophical dimension to some of the work was the way that uh, different theories of property, so uh, John Locke's idea of um, the creation of 
property through uh, labor um, is is a key one but then also um, ideas from people like Adam Smith um, and the stadial theory of societal evolution so that the view that societies evolved from hunter-gatherers to uh, pastoral herders to um, farming and and horticulture through to mercantile economies um, was used, and people like Governor Macquarie did talk about these ideas um, to in their interaction with Indigenous Australians to sort of try to get them to garden, to get them to farm as a way of helping them move along uh, the evolutionary chain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the book was. In, in the first part of the book, at least, interested in those philosophical ideas, also from um, Jeremy Bentham and um, Thomas Malthus and the way that they were influential on early colonial um, politicians, early colonial governors, uh, and the way that the land was viewed through those um, philosophical and um, policy lenses. Mm-hmm. So there's often said that there's been a lot of ideas around agriculture that Europeans brought to Australia that were simply wrong mm. um, in terms of not understanding that the seasons were reversed or that different kinds of practices don't work and the rain follows the plough thing led to bits of Australia being um, farmed that were never suitable for anything other than, than pastoralism. Uh, but more deeply than that, I mean, what, what has been the kind of material impact of applying some of those philosophical frames to the sort of vagaries or the specificities of this continent. Yeah, so I think that particularly around the southeast and and into um, South Australia, where some of um, Bentham's ideas in particular were were quite uh, prominent, um, I think there was a, a, a desire to change the landscape through these agricultural practices um, and to, in a, in a lot of colonial newspapers, they talk about the creation of a little England and to be able to mould the landscape to be a home-like environment. And, and I think it also tied in with um, uh, a lot of colonial medicine at the time as well. So uh, one of my supervisors, Warwick Anderson, in his book, Cultivation of Whiteness, also he talks a little bit about agriculture. His main focus is on medicine, but the way agriculture tied in with this uh, medical ideas around bad air or um, miasma um, and the need to cultivate the land to, in a sense, um, get rid of the bad air. And there was also concern, though, about the way the soil could kick up um, these diseases. So there was a a lot of, I think, medical as well as um, political uh influence on on the use of agriculture to transform the land and the landscape to for the english to look more like their own homeland right so where does uh, and the um what they call the acclimations acclimatization societies yeah, the ones that the yeah. ones that brought all the animals over and yes. just thought yeah if we let deer run free here that will be a good thing <laughs> that's I right mean, yeah. carp and foxes <laughs> true so I was reading a thing about that the other day, actually. They were talking about how it wasn't just bringing European animals. They would bring Chinese sparrows yeah. and other things too because they just they wanted to have this idealised sort Menagerie of... Menagerie. <laughs> it's curious. Uh, it's easy for us now, though, to look back on that and go, well, come on, that's you know a ridiculous thing to do. Obviously, mm. foxes don't belong here and they're just going to eat all of the tasty, defenceless marsupials that were here, just, just as one minor thing. Um, but, well, not minor if you're marsupial. Mm. So... But, I mean, is, is it possible that that's just us bringing our own kind of um, 
well, regimes of knowledge, I guess you could yeah. say, our own kind of uh, equally contingent mm. and historically contingent what frameworks to view to bear on this stuff yeah i mean there's certainly those uh, live and ongoing debates um in in this kind of historical work as well as um as you know in your own work with um in moral philosophy as to to what extent can we judge the past through a present lens i think what's also interesting the way that different um uh at the time, different debates around what should or shouldn't be done or the way to interact with the natural environment, the way to interact with Indigenous people was there was difference in approach. So there was big debates about whether the Australian landscape could um, become uh, a little England with villages and small farmers and those sorts of things. And that was pushed as well by the pastoralists who had a strong economic interest in having it as grazing land as opposed to small villages. But there were also, I think, and, and this I didn't really do any um, much research on this in the, in the book, but it's interesting to see the way, say, different Christian um, missionaries um viewed the land and, and the indigenous populations from say the Lutherans and, and being more Germanic, well they are Germans <laughs> <laughs> and not necessarily having that same attachment to the crown had a in some cases a sort of romantic idea of the natural environment but they also had um, an, a more open relationship both to indigenous people and the land in a way that arguably Anglican um uh, and CMS um, folk didn't. That's an area where I, I think that some more interesting work could be done on the, the different um, the frameworks that uh, some of those missionaries came with mm-hmm. that opened or foreclosed different possibilities. No, it's interesting. I mean, that's interesting too, given that that sort of, you know, the German identity was very self-consciously squashed out of Australian discourse yeah. in the early 20th century. And that, that sort of whole, mm. I mean, World War One helped, but yeah. you know, yeah. it was kind of already <laughs> going on before that. In terms of some of the role that agriculture or thinking about agriculture plays in Australian discourse today, and of course there are a lot of contemporary anxieties about um, foreign ownership of um agricultural land leading to issues around food security you know if the if chinese agribusiness owns most of our productive capacity then you know is there a problem with that issues around water usage you know the murray darling issue that's going on at the moment should we be farming cotton in a dry continent all that sort of stuff to what extent is that contemporary uh context still conditioned by some of the colonial era thinking is that you've been talking about in terms of that sort of theoretical background mm. yeah so i think uh, a lot of it is and that's what really drove me to do this write this book and and partly looking at uh, or largely looking at the more alternative agricultural spaces um which i initially was and to some extent am still attracted by but it was at, at looking at those contemporary discussions around people saying we need to do regenerative agriculture small scale farms farmers markets community supported agriculture urban agriculture all of these things which are all very nice and and good and do have strong focus on um trying to have some kind of environmental and societal change in looking at those i could see or hear uh to keep to the one metaphor echoes of um 
earlier debates, and and often from people or, or sections of society that perhaps the more progressive um, food politics people today wouldn't necessarily align with. So, mm. for instance, uh, like early country party documents and these ideas of country-mindedness um, that was put forward by Earl Page, one of the founders of the country party, which really was seeing small-scale farming, farmers as the backbone of society, these sort of Jeffersonian ideas as well that um, – that these farming communities have a certain virtue to them that isn't found in um, the city, um, that it provides a certain depth of character that is able to sort of bond together in um, hard times. And so I I think that those sorts of ideas still permeate a lot in both the, say, more progressive alternative agriculture um, in in wanting to look forward as a way to, say, be resilient against climate change and to be able to adapt, as well as in the more sort of um, agribusiness um, political level through Barnaby Joyce, again, this sort of um, valorization of the rural and the farming communities um, today. Uh, and so seeing putting those into the historical context, I think is important to see, particularly in the 1930s, there was a lot of concern around the vacant lands in the north and um, this Earl Page and Country Party again thought that one of the ways of ensuring Australia's security, particularly from um, overpopulated northern Asian neighbours would be to populate uh, the northern area of Australia. And today it's obviously a little bit different in the way agriculture is seen to securitise Australia, but it still is seen to have this particular role, whether that's feeding the hungry northern neighbours by producing food for the growing um, Indonesian middle classes. And there's obviously a lot of concern around uh, Chinese ownership of farms and those sorts of things. But it seems that there has been a long anxiety among the settler invader population that the same will happen again to us <laughs> unless we're able to secure the borders and agriculture has often been one of the means of doing that. So you mentioned that you're kind of forward looking here, so not just doing a kind of, well, you are doing a kind of Foucaultian style genealogy of these yeah. um, these ideas, but also looking forward to a different kind of food politics. What does that look like? That is... Um yeah, sort of where I leave the book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Owl of Minerva only flies at midnight. All, yeah, all, of, those sorts of, all of those sorts of gestures. Um, well, one of the areas that I, I do um, sort of finish the book, the, the final two chapters, are looking at um, Foucault uh, and his politics of rights and and trying to – and I suppose that's a, more of a dimension of the philosophical aspect of the book um, – is is engaging with some recent debate um, over whether Foucault does have a philosophy of rights. He's often seen as somebody who is critical of uh, rights largely because of its um, uh, seemingly uh, weddedness to uh, a form of humanism and a form of the individual uh, that he um, arguably wants to do away with. And so trying to look at sort of tactical way rights uh, uh, can be used in in the context of food politics because there's a lot of people who will talk about the right to food and and so looking at the way um, those rights discourses are used um, by uh, organisations like um, La Via Campesina, The Peasant's Way, which is a global 
um, group of over 200 million peasant farmers who advocate through um, channels such as the um, FAO, the UN's um, Food and Agricultural uh, Organization, but also out, go outside that to other ways of political action. And they also they have this idea of food sovereignty, um, which is for producers and consumers to have greater control over the food systems. Um, and so these ideas are being taken up into Australia. And this is something that I think on the one hand is good, but another part of what the book is that we do not have a peasant class in Australia. So there's nobody who historically fills that role as the peasant who's able to say as an Ecuadorian um, farmer could, those who work the land own the land. And to say that in Australia as a perhaps um, somebody who is not of Indigenous um, background, to say you own the land is, is a fraught um, statement to make. And so I finished by looking at food sovereignty in the context of Indigenous sovereignty in Australia and that the food politics and food justice in Australia um, really cannot get off on the right foot if it doesn't have as a precondition Indigenous justice and Indigenous sovereignty. And so I think by listening to um, the voices, particularly around, say, the Uluru Statement um, and listening to Indigenous voices around their desire for sovereignty and their desire for greater role in uh, resource management and, and these sorts of areas that there's an opportunity for food activists to listen primarily and then to perhaps work on a way uh, of, of coalitions of working together to achieve both food justice and some of these ideas of food sovereignty, but also um, the uh, other significant and difficult challenge mm -hmm. in a settler colonial society like Australia, which is Indigenous justice. It sort of seems like in a lot of these discussions too, we we don't really know what that's going to look like yet. Yes, yeah, exactly. So we don't you know, we don't have a good grasp on exactly what a sort of resettlement of Australia, if you like, almost a sort of you know a, you know re rebooting the whole project. Is, yeah. is what what will actually look like after that, and what some of these yeah, and I suppose that's what the structures will look like. The book trying, try, I mean, on the one hand, it can seem like a bit of a cop out, but I think that it is also the appropriate. Uh, situation, which is, you know, I wasn't going to finish the book by saying, and these are the sort of uh, 13 steps that need to happen um, for, you know, food justice and Indigenous justice to be achieved, but more to what I f feel or hope I have done is outline some of the um, history and that uh, reverberation of that history into the present of these things that need to be addressed and dealt with to start that conversation, to start that um, uh, looking forward and, and primarily yeah, in, in listening to the voices that have already articulated many of these problems, particularly Indigenous voices mm -hmm. that have articulated these problems um, and, and to bring them into this food space but then hopefully that can broaden out into other areas. Yeah. It all sounds very optimistic for a Foucaultian project. <laughs> like it all sounds a bit, you know. I'm still waiting for the. But in the end, it's all just power, and nothing gets any better. It just gets real. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe I've um, oversold <laughs> the, uh, the optimism. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I am 
optimistic in that I think these things necessarily will be achieved and certainly won't be achieved in a um, in a neat and ordered way. And probably actually, uh, I think, um, I don't know, I do feel more hopeful and more uh, optimistic about um, Indigenous... Uh, um, recognition of Indigenous sovereignty and moving in that direction. Um, the food stuff seems to be very tied up with um, a lot of not only big business and big politics on um, on the large-scale area, but even among the sort of smaller food activists uh, groups, they there seem to be a lot of splintering among group you know with with many of these activist spaces it can be quite difficult to sort of gain a sort of uh, a solidified whole which i think is a is a, a testament to the uluru statement as well that i mean while there are criticisms of that process and and how representative it is uh, i think it is in and of itself its process is quite a testament to um getting people together and providing opportunity to talk. So um, in the food space, there seems to be a lot more, uh, um, less realism as well. So there's a lot of fractions and factions. And I think there's a, and and I guess that's part of what drove the book as well. I think there's a lot of sort of naive overhyping of Practices, say farmers markets, that are nice things, but they ultimately serve the interests of a very small and privileged um, section of society. Yeah. Is that pessimistic enough? Yeah, no. We're much we're much more into Foucault territory (laughs) now. That's I'm I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) Right. Uh, All right, great. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Uh, The book is Unsettling Food Politics, Agriculture, Dispossession and Sovereignty in Australia. We're on a little field. Um, Has it been – you haven't had any reviews of it yet or anything still too early in the piece? There are some nice endorsements, but, yeah, uh, yeah, no um, official reviews. I I think people – sometimes don't understand how long it takes for academic books yeah, to be reviewed. That, you, know, right, you, can yeah. be, you can be long dead by the time someone... That's right. But then suddenly 20 of them will appear. It's, yeah. like, it's like buses. Yeah. <laughs> right. It is like buses. I hate the way buses do that. Yeah. All right. Christopher Mays, thank you very much for talking to Thanks us. Thanks a lot. Deacon is produced by Thai, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. For more information visit blogs.deacon.edu.au slash philosophy.